Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Many of you uh, probably received an email um, on uh, on Friday, I believe it was sent out, and it came from our uh, district supervisor for the four square churches um, in Oregon, uh, Larry Spousta. And it, but the email would have come from the the church address, and it really uh, was sharing something wonderful uh, that's taking place. And those of you that have been part of the New Life family, uh, at least for this year, um, are aware of the story that pastors Ron and Annette uh, have been on a protracted leave of absence, and and uh, they've gone through a process of journey of healing and restoration and uh, very, very significant for them and for the New Life family. And, uh, but what Pastor Larry was communicating in the email is that that leave of absence is coming to a closure. And uh, in fact, the very, very good news is that next weekend, Pastor Ron and Annette will be reinstalled um, as the uh, senior pastors here. Praise the Lord. And, and not only is that so significant for the Swars and for the New Life family, but truly I believe that for each person that has their own story um, and possibly has some brokenness as part of that, the recognition of what God will do restoratively in each one. I believe there's great reason for rejoicing and for hope for, for each one individually. And so what I'd like to do is invite you next weekend to make sure you're here. And in fact, not only will there be the laying on of hands and the, the reinstalling and recommissioning of, of Ron and Annette next weekend at all three of the services, but immediately following each of the services, there's going to be out on the patio uh, a reception uh, for Ron and Annette just to welcome them and to, to encourage them and to celebrate together. So wanted to make sure you knew that. That is next weekend. And uh, now it's my privilege to invite the scarved one. Uh, would you say Merry Christmas to James Walton? Thanks, Tim. Welcome, folks. I love uh, this church, uh, and when I say that, I mean, I obviously, I mean, the campus is beautiful, but when we talk about church, what we're really talking about is the people who come here, and I think that we have really great people here, and I get to serve alongside some wonderful colleagues, and I love to be able to um, see you guys each week, so thank you for uh, your involvement with us. Merry Christmas. Um, I'm really excited to see what God has in store for us, not only in 2014, but in many years to come, so... Um, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about how Jesus is the centerpiece of Christmas. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look here. You see Jesus sits right there in the middle. And uh, we're just going to kind of work around the circle. And we're going to use this out of the book of John. John is the fourth gospel. And unlike Matthew and Luke that starts with the Christmas story, you know, the nativity and the shepherds and the wise men and the Bethlehem business, uh, Mark doesn't do any of that because he gets right into the action. Uh, John takes things from a bit of a different perspective. Uh, John actually was written much later than the other three Gospels, and so he has the benefit of a few more years of reflection. And so we're going to pick it up in John's Gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, uh, find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the fourth book in there, and you're going to stop at chapter 1. And as you're there, let's go ahead and pray and get into our text. 
Jesus, thank you that you have come to bring us grace. Let the good news of your arrival uh, cause us to be filled with much joy. Thank you for the season. Holy Spirit, you're invited and welcome here in this place. Teach us and give us the courage to apply that what you need us to hear. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, John, the, if you'll notice, the first part of John, the first 18 verses is what we call a prologue. And it's really, it's, ah, it's, I, I geek out about this stuff because it's way too much to ever cover in one sermon. So we're going to just start here in verse 14 and then look at verses six, 16 and 17 as well. It starts like this. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, skip down to verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with John chapter 1, you'll remember that when, G when John uses the word word and the word became flesh, what he's doing there is he's referring back to Jesus. We don't have time to get into all the reasons why, but what John was doing is he was writing in a particular context in which the widest possible audience would understand this word as referring back to Jesus. So I want to zoom in back here to John chapter, uh, go forward actually to John chapter 1 verse 1 and it says, and in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now watch the stair step pattern there. What it's referring to is that Jesus is pre-existent, meaning that before creation, Jesus existed. He was in the beginning, which sounds like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? He was in the beginning with God, which means that Jesus was never created. There was never a moment when Jesus was not. He is fully God. And then John says he was with God. He was alongside the Father in the process of creation. Another verse would say that everything that was made was made through the agency of Jesus Christ. And then finally, John says that not only was Jesus pre-existent, he was alongside the Father, he was God. So if you move back out then to John chapter uh, verse 14, then input Jesus where you see the word word. And Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. So the miracle of Christmas is this that God becomes a human being. The word we use to describe this is something called the incarnation. Incarnation is a kind of a big word, but you'll recognize that. So if you go to a Mexican restaurant and you order carne asada, are you getting a vegetarian dish or are you getting a meat dish? You know you're getting a meat dish because what is the word carne? Carne means meat. It means flesh. So when we talk about the incarnation, it's a Latin word that means to put on flesh. So what God, the mind-blowing part of Christmas is that God who was preexistent for the entire creation of the world, who spoke the universe into existence, who by the very breath of his mouth, stars were created and have burned for years, that same God becomes a baby. It's what we call the incarnation, that God puts on flesh, that he becomes like one of us, that God becomes a human being. I don't know, if you believe in God, I don't know, there's a chance that you have a perception of God that you consider him to be something of what we call like an absentee landlord. He, he set the whole business in motion, but basically he's somewhere else, hiding out on the backside of a star somewhere, watching us with a long telescope, wondering what we're all up to, but really not terribly involved. And, it's, I understand, and this is actually very understandable. Um, if you've ever lost a loved one, 
in a tragic way or had something very negative befall you and you were praying, God, please stop this or please, no. And then, and then the, your worst fears were realized. It's easy to ask, okay, God, where were you? If you're real, why didn't you step into my situation? And sometimes if we're not careful, what can come out of that is a kind of resigned disappointment with God. He obviously doesn't care. Look at this bad event that happened in the past. And the Bible doesn't give us that luxury because what the Bible describes for us is not a God who is distant, but a God who cared so much that he was a God who came near. He was a God who put on human flesh, who came, the Bible says, in the form of a man. So God was, he became a human being. And he understood everything of what it was like um, to suffer. If you look at Jesus, sometimes it's really easy to think of Jesus as like, well, he's just kind of pretending. He's really God, but he's just kind of like wearing a, a set of clothes that looks like a human being. But really, he's God. You know, so when he does all this cool stuff like walking on water or healing the sick or raising the dead, that's just him being God. And there's no way in the world that we could ever get to where he is. The kind of relationship that he has with the Father, well, that's because obviously he's the Son. We would expect nothing less. And yet the Bible consistently affirms that Jesus was fully human in every possible way, which means that he was tempted with sin and yet he was able to resist. It means that he was hungry and he was thirsty and he was tired. It means that he knew how to laugh and tell jokes. It means that he passed gas. And then had to blame somebody else for it and laugh about it. Because passing gas is not a sin. So he's still sinless even though he farted. <laughs> we, ha we have a tendency to think of Jesus and the art doesn't help us. If you look at church history, the art always has Jesus with some sort of like porcelain skin and halos. Jesus was a working class, run-of-the-mill, blue-collar guy that worked with his hands, that swung a hammer, that went to work with a name tag on his shirt that says Jesus, Joseph and Son Construction. And he spent, I don't know, probably 20 years doing something very mundane without sunscreen in the blazing hot Middle Eastern sun. He knew what it was like to have to run a business in a small town where everybody knew him. Nazareth, most scholars will tell us, was probably no larger than 400 people. If you ever grew up in a small town, I mean small, Canby's big, but we're talking small town, right? You can't go anywhere. People know the truck you drive. People know where you live. People know what your kids are up to. And if you ever grow up in that environment, you're labeled by what your family's like because everybody knows you. So think about Jesus' poor younger brothers and sisters, right? You know, they're in school in the third grade. Oh, you're Jesus' brothers. Mm. He did well in this class. Let's see how you do. Jesus knew what it was like to have be a part of a community. If you look at Eugene Peterson's phrase, if you look at the message, he'll, he'll translate this verse, and he says that God became flesh, and he moved into the neighborhood. The word originally, uh, the, that he dwelt among us, it comes from the same word as you would use to pitch a tent, which for a Jew would immediately conjure up an image of when they were wandering in the wilderness and they were living in tents. So imagine for a moment, if you've ever been out to shampoo, you know, the campground, all of a sudden somebody comes in, is this, can I pitch my tent here next to you? You're inviting somebody into their life. Well, that's what Jesus did to us. He invited himself into our lives. He took upon, he, you notice that Jesus didn't come as a king or a ruling class elite. He didn't come laden with wealth. He came to an unwed teenage mom. They were so poor, they couldn't even, when they went to go dedicate Jesus, they had to bring what the Bible describes as the offering that the poor people would bring. 
Jesus came to a position of no reputation, and yet he moves into the neighborhood. This is what the incarnation means, that when we look at Jesus, because when we see Jesus, we see God. So what does God care about? God cares about being next to us. God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And we serve a God who is not distant. In fact, he is so intimately close to us. And here's what I love about the Christian life, and especially the Christmas season. The Christmas season asks us to look at the nativity and the birth of Jesus Christ in awe and wonder that a beautiful God would come down to an ugly world and say, I am going to redeem everything about this so that I will become a man in order that mankind might be with God. We saw that earlier that Jesus came in order that we might receive adoption as sons. But here's our responsibility. We don't just get to look at Jesus and say, wow, that's really neat, and go on our merry way. We get to look at Jesus and say, if Jesus became like a human being in the neighborhood in which he dwelt, how are we doing? What does the Bible say about what we're supposed to do to our neighbors? The Bible says, blank your neighbor. What does it say? Love. Okay, love. Great. So everybody gets that. Uh, Also says, love your enemy. Uh, We'll ignore that one for a time being. Um, I would suggest that a, a, a great first step, if you're going to drill down and ask, what does it mean to love someone? It would probably be to get to know their name. How are you doing? Do you know the names of your neighbors? That's a great place to start because here's what Jesus did. Jesus lived in a small town in a public place and he did business with everyone. He didn't sequester himself back in his own little holy huddle He was out among the community. And this is what I love about the opportunity that we have as Christians today is to be among our community, in our neighborhood, knowing the people who are around us. And I recognize that we're, I mean, Canby's rural. I mean, distant, remote sometimes. So you might look out, on your street is like cows and then the chicken coop and then trees. So I understand that not everybody has neighbors, okay? So some of you guys are stuck way out in the boonies and frankly, you like it that way and you don't want anybody to stop by. Um... Others of us live in apartment complexes and on blocks with, you know, streets and blocks and in neighborhoods and cul-de-sacs and subdivisions, and we have the opportunity to actually kind of do life in a bit more of a public way. How are we doing with this? There's, I think, amazing opportunities that we oftentimes, because it's not built into the rhythms and the habits of our world, where there's an attitude that I want this church to have, that as we go from here, what you get to be is a little Jesus, a little immature, improper, imperfect reflection, but a reflection nonetheless of Jesus Christ in the world around you. And as you begin to live a public life, what do I mean? It means keep your blinds open. It means turn your porch light on. It means create a welcoming facade. It means spend time in public places, like walk your dog in your neighborhood, spend time in your front yard apart from just mowing it. Allow people to interact with you in neutral territory. Get to know people. Hand out Christmas cards to your neighbor. Don't just mail them. Knock on their door. Hi, I'm not sure we've met. Here's us. We'd love to be able to spread Christmas cheer. Now, we have a terrible habit sometimes of labeling the people around us, right? Well, those people, they're like duck fans, and those people, I'm certain, are Democrats, and those people, they have a sign that says season greetings in their yard, so they must be totally pagan. I, <laughs> may I suggest to you that God didn't come in the form of a baby In order for us to complain about people who say season's greetings as opposed to Merry Christmas, 
Now, I mean, I appreciate the war on Christmas, and I get that Christianity is under attack, but Jesus came that we might demonstrate grace. And if somebody says happy holidays or Merry Christmas, have the decency just to say thank you because they're trying to interact with you. A stranger doesn't talk to you the other 11 months out of the year. So appreciate that even though they don't use the language you may prefer because our gracious response is far more important to Jesus than us insisting on the word Christmas being used. That's just me, that might be, anyway. All right, we gotta keep going. All right, point is this. Um, Don't miss out on the opportunity to host football games and to mommy swap and to take care of one another. My... um, my wife and I realized this a while back. We moved into a neighborhood, and um, we got to know a few of our neighbors, and then we realized that it kind of just stuck right there. We had our circle, and that was kind of it. And we realized we don't know even the people who live um, adjacent to us, and so we just decided to start hosting these dinners. Like food, you'll notice that Jesus is constantly eating with people. Do the same. Do the same. Invite people over to dinner. There is, there's no church happening this upcoming week. You've got all the nights of the week off. So find time where you'd normally be at church to find somebody into your house. Invite them in. Have a meal. And in fact, so what happened with us is that we started, and we started small. There was like three or four families that got together on our back porch. And then we decided, well, what if we started doing this kind of like every month? And wouldn't you know it, like we just had a Christmas party. That was probably like the fourth or fifth time that group had gotten together. And there was like 30 people there. Because friends had invited friends and it just went up the block. And these are all people whose houses we can see. And now we get to know them. We know the dogs that they walk. We know what they're about. And I don't know, half of them probably aren't even Christian. And that's great. Because at least now we know them. And there's a point of contact for relationship. So I know some of you are committed introverts. And the idea of meeting somebody new is absolutely terrifying. May I encourage you, for the sake of the gospel... Jesus left heaven to come to earth to be among us. Leave your front porch and cross the street for the sake of the gospel. Okay, all right, what's next? All right, verse goes on to say this, that we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What is glorious about Jesus? Two things, well, three. One, that we see it. Uh, two, that he is the son of the father, and three, he is full of grace and truth. Um, the father is fully pleased with the son. Do you guys remember when Jesus gets baptized? So if you don't know the story, so Jesus is about 30 years old. He had spent his entire life working, supporting a family, and all of a sudden he goes down to the Jordan River, meets his crazy cousin John the Baptist, and John, uh, he asked John to baptize him. And so here, it's a good thing we had a photograph there, so that was, that's what happened. Um, so Jesus comes up out of the water, and if you remember, so the heavens open, and a spirit comes, the spirit comes down in the form of a dove and, and rests upon Jesus, and then, and then what happens? There's a voice from heaven. You guys remember what the voice says? The voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is a very cool incident in my mind, but what's really amazing to me isn't so much that the heavens broke open and that God spoke audibly to the people standing on the bank. It's the fact about when this happened. What had Jesus done at this point in his life? Had he healed any sick people? Had he, you guys, I've mentioned this before in School of Life. What's amazing to me about this isn't that it happened, but that it happened here. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, far before he had ever done anything of quote-unquote ministry value, Jesus was a regular guy working a regular job. 
And this was the very first, this was the first part of his ministry. So here's what this means, is that Jesus's worth, Jesus's value in the eyes of the Father was quite apart from his performance. Especially here in the American West, we have a demon that chases us that's called performance anxiety where we tie our value to our ability to make money, where we tie our value to our ability to succeed, to be able to have stuff, to get good grades, to find attractive spouse, um, to be able to drive fancy cars. We associate how good we are with what we're able to do. And the gospel says, quit trying so hard. You're already accepted. You're already beloved. You're already forgiven, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. In the eyes of the Father, it is not your merit that gets you anywhere, but the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is to quit trying so hard and simply rest in the trust that Jesus is actually sufficient. That's the gospel. And no other gospel will get you to the place where you are accepted by the Father unless it's through Jesus Christ because he is perfect and we are not. And that gives us the power to be able to rest. It means that our sins have been forgiven. Happened to follow Billy Graham's grandson on Twitter and he put this up this week. He said, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if I could assure them that they are forgiven, a non-Christian psychologist to a friend of mine. Think about that statement. I'm not a therapist, so I can't say whether or not this is totally true, but it resonates with you, doesn't it? That the people who populate this therapist's office are people who are dealing with an abiding sense that they're simply not worthy enough, that they haven't been forgiven And even this guy who's not a Christian would say, if I could just convince them deep down in their bones that they have been truly forgiven, they would have no need of my services anymore. Friends, may I remind you of the gospel. May I remind you in love that because of what Jesus Christ has done, your sin no longer haunts you. You have been forgiven once and for all. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, So have faith in him, rest in him, trust him, and fight the fight because the devil, the the word devil means accuser or slanderer. What's the devil doing right now to screw up your life? He's trying to convince you your sins aren't really forgiven and to keep you trapped, feeling like you're not worth it. It's said that value is determined by what a person would pay or sacrifice to attain that. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that God paid to get you back. You look to the cross and you see Jesus and in Jesus you see the value that God places upon you. He hasn't made junk. You're not junk. You're forgiven. Goes on to say, gets even better. Verse 16 says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Where have we received this from? Bible says it's from the fullness of Christ. Again, it's important how you, what your imagination tells you when you imagine Jesus. Sometimes a lot of people think it's like, it's like a zero-sum game, which means that if I give something to my buddy Tim Mossholder here, I'll have less to give to Tim Lesher because my resources are finite. And you kind of think that if God is going to bless somebody else, that means he's got left to hand out to you. And that's not the way that our God works. 
His grace is infinite. From his fullness, we have received. God is an overflowing fountain. He is a bubbling spring. He is infinite. There is no depth to our God. There is no amount that you can take from God that would impoverish him. He continues to give and to give and to give. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. It does not Stop. God does not get dry. He does not grow weary. He does not say your quota is full. He says, I have more to give because he is not like us. He is infinite and he is gracious and he is for us. So rest in the fact that God won't ever quit. This is the beautiful thing about why Christmas is awesome. You remember all the way back in Luke, you were the, so the shepherds are uh, out you know, keeping their watch over their fields or their flocks by night, something like that. Luke chapter two, and then all of a sudden the angel shows up. What does the angel say? The angel says, fear not. I bring you good news of great joy for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Why is Christmas good news, great joy, all people, because Jesus is a God who does not get empty. And when he has come, he changes everything. And when our lives are lived in connection with his, we receive grace upon grace. Last verse we want to look at is verse 17. 17 says, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me explain Moses for you. Uh, Moses was an Old Testament character, one of the key characters in the Old Testament. And um, if you remember the Charlton Heston movie, guy with a big beard up on the mountain with a staff and kind of angry eyes, and he comes down and he's got um, two tablets of stone. Those are the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are known as the law. So uh, Exodus 20 is where we first meet the Ten Commandments, and almost the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy uh, detail for us a lot of other laws that the Old Testament Israelites were supposed to abide by in order to be in relationship with the Holy God. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you know that by and large, they failed rather tragically. So here John all of a sudden brings into the idea that we're talking about Jesus, where we're really comfortable. All of a sudden he says, um, the law came, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And frequently, if we're Christians, we kind of read this verse like this. The internal dialogue kind of goes like this. The law was given through Moses. Boo. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Ah. We think like, yeah, man, get Moses out of the way, just give us Jesus. But that doesn't do justice to the way that the rest of the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament. A lot of us have this idea that the Old Testament is just archaic, out of date. Basically, we can ignore it and ignore it happily, actually. I never want to read Leviticus again. Did it once? Wasn't good. I'm moving on. And so we kind of like, we'll stick, we call ourselves New Testament Christians. What does the New Testament itself actually say about the Old Testament? Paul would say in Romans chapter 7 that the law is actually, quote, holy, righteous, and good. So before we're too quick to disparage the Old Testament, at least let's do due diligence to ask how the New Testament sees the Old. So if Moses is good, exactly in what way does that law intersect our life? Uh, Let me give you two illustrations. Uh, One is this. Imagine for a moment that you're on a ship sailing to the new world. And you spend months aboard the ship crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And finally you arrive here on the east coast of the United States. And you disembark. But your mission is to continue further inland. So what must you do? You must leave the ship behind. Does that make the ship bad? Or irrelevant? 
Not at all. In fact, you're very thankful for the ship, and you'll never forget the way that you were shaped as it got you across on the journey. But now the journey has shifted. The dynamic is different. The objective requires you to take a different tack. So the ship remains behind. It's good, but you simply have no more need of it because you're moving on. Another illustration. Imagine for a moment that you're say, as in Paul's environment. Paul was familiar with Roman households. Imagine for a moment you come from a relatively wealthy Roman household and the father of the household cares for you as a son and wants very much for you to be educated in all the ways of the Greek and the Roman philosophers and wants you to be able to be um, very intelligent. And so what does that father do? He hires for you uh, potentially maybe an educated slave in the household. This person becomes your guardian or your tutor. And from infancy, this person is with you to teach you and to guide you and to inform you to help shape you, to give you a sense for what is right and for what is wrong, to let you know how the world works. Well, what happens the moment that you become an adult? Do you have the need of the services of a guardian or a tutor anymore? No. You don't. Why? Well, frankly, you're an adult. And whereas before in infancy and childhood, you needed an external rule book in order to keep you in line so that you had something that would keep you in check, but now as an adult... What do we want? We want people who are mature, who are able to determine right and wrong for themselves, and from an internal motivation, make their way through life. The tutor doesn't become somehow irrelevant or ugly just because you're simply coming to adulthood. In fact, you're very grateful for the tutor to get you to where you are now, but now at this new stage in your life, you have no more need. Does that make sense? Let me, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm twisting that out of Paul in Galatians chapter 3. So I want to show that to you here. It says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then when the law was our guardian, there's that word, think tutor for a young boy in a Roman household. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. For in Jesus Christ, you are all, what's the word? Sons. Sons of God through faith. So here's the beautiful thing. We have come to a place of full maturity and adulthood. The law was useful to get us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, Christ supersedes the law. Now here's what I'm going to be careful not to say. The Bible in many places all throughout the New Testament says, you are no longer under the law. Which means... That because of what Jesus Christ has done, your behavioral record, the scale of balances that determines how much good you've done versus how much bad you've done, gets wiped away entirely. All the record that God looks at is Jesus' record. And when we have faith in him, that record gets assigned to us. So we're not under the law anymore. It has no power to condemn. It has no power to cause death. We're under Christ, not the law. And praise Jesus. Okay, but... What I don't, the very next breath out of my mouth needs to say, don't take advantage of this opportunity. Because some of you may consider, well, if you're seriously telling me that I can do whatever I want and God will still forgive me, what's to keep me from doing all sorts of ugliness? The answer is, look at that last line, you are all what? Sons. Now, we like to use that language because it helps us understand that we have this love relationship with the Father who has adopted us. So that's a privilege of being a son. 
But you would better believe there's also certain responsibilities that come with being a son as well. And especially in Paul's day, as it was probably even a generation ago, do you guys remember seeing a lot of businesses that was so-and-so and son? Right. What does that mean? There was a cultural value that said you didn't go off and go to college and go do your own thing. You carried on the family name and the family trade on the family land. And so a son had the responsibility. What did Jesus say at the age of 12 in the temple? I must be about my father's business. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Well, what did he understand? He understood very well that if he's going to call himself son, that means that he has responsibility back to the father to carry out his business. And this is where it gets really good for me. Because what that means is that I, as a Christian, have been not only purchased, valued unbelievably, I've been forgiven of all of my sin, I can walk in grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but not only that, I'm sent on mission to be a member of the family of God to proclaim the grace that I have received and to point people back to God. What does Matthew 5 chapter say? He says, let your good works so shine before men. Why? So that they might see them and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Guys, our goal isn't simply to sit in some vat of grace saying, boy, I sure am glad I can screw up and God will still forgive me. No, your goal is to fight sin and temptation. Your goal is to depend daily upon the power of the Holy Spirit and to proclaim the riches of the grace that you have received as a son of the Father. Father advancing the business of your dad. It's what we call mission. We have been commissioned by the only son, Jesus, and we as his adopted brothers and sisters get to participate in what he has done by his power to reach a lost world for Jesus and say there is a different way to live and it's found through Jesus Christ and it's beautiful. So no, we're not under the law anymore but we're under the Bible calls the law of Christ, which is summed up in one word, love. We love. May this be a community that is known first and foremost by its love for one another, for the world around us. Let's wrap it up with this. The gospel of grace means that we have been set free because of Jesus. So I'll show you these three, two graphs. You see Jesus and I, you take sides. First thing that Jesus does is he becomes flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood. Never forget that your God came near. His hands are dirty. His fingernails have dirt underneath them. He's got scars in his hands and in his side and in his feet. He knows pain. He knows you. He is near. He is present. You can pray and trust that he cares. The next thing is this, that he's the only son of the Father that his value and worth came not because of what he did, but because of who he was in relationship to his dad. The same is true for you. When you're a son of the father, your value is because you are a son or a daughter. Last one is this, that grace and truth are given through him. Jesus is the source and he is an unending well. From his fullness, we have all received. So how does this relate to me? Here's the things that you need to know. As it relates to you, the first thing I want you to do is to behold his glory. This is so important. The only sustainable vision I see for the Christian life isn't to come to church every week and to get like an adrenaline shot to try harder doing the things that you're not good at. The only sustainable way to live the Christian life, in my opinion, is to behold the glory of Jesus and to be so captivated by it that it actually changes you from the inside out. 
You can't resist temptation forever. You need temptation to be replaced with something else. That man's name is Jesus. So when you behold his glory, when you begin to fall in love with him, when you begin to appreciate for him for who he is, then a lot of the other areas in your life begin to fall into place a little more easily because the motivation becomes not extrinsic outside of you. The preacher man said I should do X, Y. No, Jesus within you says I am motivated by my love for the king. The next thing I want you to do is this. Recognize that you're adopted into his family. Believe that you're truly forgiven. Recognize that grace has intersected your life from the moment you were born and that you are held together by the grace of Christ and that he still actually deeply, truly, genuinely loves you and that you are his son and his daughter and you're adopted. Not only that, but you have the full right and responsibility then to be a good reflection for the father who loved you so much, which above all means this, love your neighbors well. The last thing that you do is simply receive his grace and then give it to others. Jesus has forgiven you of all. That gives you the power and the capacity. It's never easy, but it gives you the ability to forgive others as well. We can move through life as a community on mission, motivated by love, empowered by the Holy Spirit, focused on Christ, rooted in the Bible, worshiping God for the sake of the good of this world because of Christmas. Jesus is the centerpiece of everything. He's the center of Christmas. I want to pray and just invite our uh, prayer teams and our um, worship team to come forward. Jesus, thank you that your grace is sufficient. Lord, I just want to pray for especially my brothers and sisters here for whom the holidays represent um, pain because of loss of a loved one or for whatever reason. Father, would you please be near to them? Would you let them know that they're loved greatly? Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Help us, God, to leave here motivated by a desire to reflect your love well to this world. Help us to be creative and innovative and consistent in that end. For we're your kids and we want to be about your business. In your name we pray. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.